Welcome to Better to Speak, the podcast where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Felton. Today's episode is the second part of a two-part episode on the coronavirus pandemic. I originally tried to record this episode a few weeks ago and just generally didn't like it, um, which is neither here nor there, but mainly I wanted to do an episode specifically talking about how this pandemic is disproportionately affecting black communities. A lot of us have seen the news coverage about it or have been directly affected, but when I interviewed the guest for this episode, which we'll get into in a minute, I already knew that this was going to be the case, that black people were going to be disproportionately affected by this pandemic. But at the time, there wasn't really any data to support that. Literally the next week, all these news reports came out talking about how, on average, black people were representing well over 30 to 40 percent of new cases and deaths in cities where we barely even make up 15 percent of the population. So for my home state of Georgia, which recently reopened, um, 80% of new cases were black people. I held off on putting out this episode just so I could see how things progressed. Aside from me just trying to navigate this pandemic for myself, it felt really weird to try to get on here and talk about how black people are dying at these crazy rates without having any solutions to present. And I say that because a lot of the news and social media coverage about these statistics don't really offer solutions. And then I think that leads, I know I feel this personally, but I feel like in general it leads to black people feeling like COVID-19 is an automatic death sentence simply because we're black, which is often the case with a lot of other issues. We see a lot of articles saying insert disease here, black people are more likely to die of it without offering you know, a complete story as to why that is the case. Specifically, my frustration lies with the fact that the tone around a lot of these quick headlines, sound bites, and tweets is that they don't tell a complete story, and again, they're more patronizing than solution-oriented. Obviously, the solution for some people is just to stay indoors, um, but this isn't referring to those people who are just out and about for no reason. But in my opinion, I think that, you know, these short bites that don't tell the complete story are borderline fear-mongering. And I say that because it's not something, you know, inherent within Black people, within our Blackness, that makes us sicker, that makes us more susceptible to diseases. Um, Again, which has historically been the tone of a lot of these conversations around Black health. Especially now that states are preemptively opening back up, it's important to think about how this is impacting and will continue to impact black and brown people. Of course, the majority of people who are essential workers, people who in general can't afford not to get paid or who aren't able to avoid public transportation. You think about the disproportionate amount of black and brown people who are incarcerated, who aren't able to make their own decisions about the quarantine, who aren't able to even social distance. Um, People also bring up, you know, the pre-existing conditions, but then often ignore the environmental racism that goes hand in hand with that. Um, In an article by Al Jazeera, racism has a biological impact on black and brown bodies. The chronic stress of everyday racism makes people sicker. African Americans are more likely to experience racial disparities, which translate into higher rates of hypertension, asthma, diabetes, etc. Pre-existing conditions that are linked to higher rates of death from COVID-19 infections. Many of these chronic illnesses emerge from environmental factors, such as black Americans living in underserved neighborhoods that are disproportionately subjected to a lack of clean water, such as in Flint, Michigan, or higher rates of air pollution, such as in the historically black neighborhood of Harlem in New York City. Apart from environmental racism, black communities also face lower rates of healthcare coverage and are less likely to be taken seriously by a doctor, which also exacerbates health inequities. I thought that pretty much summed up the factors that add a little bit more nuance to these headlines, that black people are more likely to suffer from coronavirus. Because again, I think some of the messaging and tone that people are taking, although it's obviously well-intentioned, doesn't look at or include that full picture and acknowledge the greater systemic forces that are at play during this pandemic and that aren't just going to immediately go away, which I feel like leads to these broader feelings of helplessness. 
About a month ago, I spoke with Marcella Ryan Harris, who's a public health professional and co-founder of Black Health, which is an Atlanta-based organization founded by alum from Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health. Again, when we spoke, we didn't have the data to support the fact that Black people were going to be disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus, but we did have an insightful conversation about how medical racism and the Black community's historic relationship with the healthcare system would eventually play out during the coronavirus pandemic. To address this outright, like, as a healthcare professional, what was your reaction to seeing the, you know, Black people are immune to this virus all over social media? That was very alarming and upsetting um, because I know, you know, some people were just making a joke of things and that's fine. You know, everything is funny, but like, it's just very important in situations like this that, you know, viruses don't discriminate. So it does not matter your race, religion, ethnicity, like none of that matters to a virus. They just see a host and that's it. So um, I think that that narrative coming out so early um, could potentially be damaging uh, moving forward just because um, with things that we're seeing with this virus and how we know with a lot of different things, Black people tend to be disproportionately impacted. And so um, narratives like that are just kind of not good at all. And speaking of the ways that Black people are disproportionately impacted, I've seen just already through news reports the racial inequities that are already um, being exacerbated because of this pandemic. So for mm -hmm. example, um, we saw Kayla Williams, a Black woman in London who just passed away at 36 because of the virus and she was told that she wasn't a priority. So how is that affecting the U.S.'s ability to slow down the spread of the virus? Honestly, we were um, kind of talking about this yesterday and it's we just feel like we're going to just continue to see a cycle of the same things that we've already seen. Like, I don't think the virus is the virus is only going to highlight the broken system that was already in place. Um, like, like you said, the woman in London was told that she wasn't a priority. I can imagine here in the States that we will see continued signs like this. I know, um, you know, even finding testing services is, you know, difficult. So we think about like, what is that, how like, you know, Black people going to access testing services, especially if they're being turned away because they're asymptomatic, even though we know that people who are asymptomatic are still passing the virus. Um, and then you also think about, you know, the people who are still having to go to work every day, you know, are the blue collar workers. And that tends to be jobs where Black people are overrepresented. So, you know, even in healthcare, personal care, you know, gig economy jobs, fast food, people that work at you know, grocery stores and Walmart. So, you know, these are all people who are going to have high exposure risks. And it, the system is just not prepared to take care of it, take care of Black people at all. And then so. are there any, um, like, organizations like Black Health who are working to, you know, alleviate this? Like, what is the, I guess, the response from community in order to, to help? Yes, so I know there are a lot of organizations here in Atlanta currently that are doing work and organizations outside of Atlanta. Um, Black Women's Health Imperative is one there outside of Atlanta. They're a really great organization. They do a lot of work in advocacy around Black women's health. They've recently launched a website dedicated to coronavirus where they have resources for mothers, um, 
and just like, you know, covering the ground stuff is talking about why social distancing is important. Um, there's another resource that I can also send to you as well um, that was posted by Black Future Feminists. And they put together like this really extensive resource kit um, that has like all the different mutual aid work going on. They have um, places that you can donate to, um, volunteer your services, and they have like a lot of different states and it's a li living, breathing document. Mm -hmm. So that's been really awesome because as people come across it, they can just update it with new information as new stuff becomes available. And I think stuff like that is really important because we learn stuff about coronavirus every day. So I think it's important to have like just living, breathing documents of exchanges of information um, just to make sure that all the information being put out is accurate and not damaging. Mm -hmm. Are we likely to see any data on like demographics about who's you know being impacted by the coronavirus or how it's spreading? Like I know you said that it doesn't you know obviously doesn't see race or like geographic location or anything like that but are we likely to see those like more specific um, data? I hope so, but I, I don't, it's hard to say because even now, like the research coming out of China and Italy, like they're not even, they're not really classifying their data by demographics outside of age. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe it'll be something that happens later, um, but it would be really interesting to see that now. But I think it's also hard because everything is just kind of underreported at this time because there is no, you know, people who need to get tested can't access testing. And so it's, it's hard to really get the data that we need to. Right. And then seeing how, like what you said about testing, how we see all these celebrities coming out saying that they're, you know, got their test results or whatever, while people, everyday people are struggling to get tests. Um, what is your opinion about that? I think, you know, it's just another unfortunate reality of living in America. Um, you know, the rich and powerful have access to things that the everyday person doesn't. Um, because, yeah, like you said, you see these celebrities who say that they were asymptomatic, but they were able to get a test. Mm -hmm. But your next door neighbor, who's probably asymptomatic, can't get a test. She can call and say, hey, I just want to get tested for myself. And they'll say, hey, what are your symptoms? oh, you don't have any, we're not going to test you. Um, so I think, you know, that also just kind of, and I think all of that just kind of creates mistrust because now you hear people saying like, oh, I think these celebrities are just getting paid to say that they have it. Mm. And one, I don't really know what the benefit would be of, of that in the first place. Um, but I think, you know, in a time like this, you don't need anything to create mistrust. And unfortunately, it's just a lot of, that happening and I don't necessarily think that you know the response has just been where it should be. Black people have historically had a strained relationship with the healthcare industry um, so how does the the coronavirus pandemic fit into that relationship and then how would you as a public health professional you know how, what would you say to people who still may be weary of going to the doctor and getting or trying to seek treatment during this pandemic? Yeah I mean I definitely understand people's hesitancy because like you said in the black community you know healthcare has not been on our side and i definitely understand you know people's apprehension but 
in a time like this, especially, you know, so again, you have the conspiracy theories that this was a man-made virus, which it wasn't. Research has already come out that this was a naturally evolved virus. Um, and then you, you know, even with testing and then you talking about developing of a vaccine, um, there are just all these different layers of like, like people not trusting those institutions. And so I think from a public health side, we just really want to educate people and give them the facts so that they can make educated decisions and not decisions based upon inaccurate information. Um, so definitely just making sure that people just have all of the right information is just really the most important thing right now. Mm-hmm. And what is the, the most important piece of information that you um, would want people to know in order to protect their health or in the event that they do end up contracting the virus? Social distancing, honestly. I don't like that they call it social distancing because it makes it sound like you can't like talk to people. So maybe just more like physical distancing, like really just following through with the isolation. If you think that you might be sick, just isolating yourself again, following the disinfecting procedures. And then even as someone who is trying to not contract the virus, you know, um, a friend of mine uh, was living in South Africa, just had to come back to the States. And she was luckily able to get tested for the virus before she came back to America. And the doctor told her there that it's just very important that yes, while we might be in our homes that, you know, remain physically active, do some home workouts, even if it's just some jumping jacks, you know, just something to be active because we know that physical activity improves your immune system, helps boost your immune system. Um, You know, making sure that you are taking, you know, vitamins, making sure you're getting vitamins A, C, and D, zinc, you know, so the stuff, everything that's in emergency, um, just, you really just want to build your immunity, and realizing, too, like, mental health, your mental health is going to be impacted by this as well, so trying to keep, you know, a sense of normalcy as much as you can. Um, I know for me personally, I still keep my morning and evening routines, just so I can keep track of my days, and, you know, again, just trying to keep something of normalcy and just, you know, making sure that you talk to your friends and your family members and FaceTime is a great thing. I think, you know, this digital age that we're in is phenomenal because I couldn't imagine going through this and not being able to, you know, have any communication really outside of people that are in your home. Um, So yeah, I think it's just important to just stay updated as best as you can if you need to de-plug. Sometimes you have to disconnect because it can be too much information and that can be overwhelming as well. Um, so definitely, if um, and I know also as far as, you know, if you're feeling symptomatic, the best thing to do is just to call your physician or call your local health department. And then that way you can talk to someone about your symptoms and they will let you know if you need to come in for a test. Um, but they are saying, if you can avoid hospitals, um, unless you just absolutely cannot manage your symptoms, but um, definitely if, if it's nothing, if it's minor symptoms, just stay at home, take care of yourself, call your doctor. Is there anything else that you would want people to know just in general? Just in general, to just try to stay positive. I know this is just a very uncertain time for a lot of people. I mean, for mostly everyone right now. And so, it can, and it's prob- unfortunately going to get worse before it gets better. Um, so just staying vigilant, doing you know what we can. We have to work together as a community at this point. 
you know, there's no individual. Like this is the time for everyone to come together as a community and y'all have to work together to fight this. Even seeing how governors and mayors are responding to stay-at-home orders being lifted or disregarded, seeing people who are flocking on a casual Tuesday like they've never flocked before, Jessica Lloyd, who I interviewed in the last episode, offered a sociological perspective um, when we're talking about values like collectivism or greater systemic change that would be necessary in order to, you know, have a different outcome, a more positive outcome to this pandemic. She said while using, you know, workplace culture as an example, that it takes about seven years for culture to change. And so the idea that all of a sudden, you know, in the moment of a crisis, when we're all trying to understand and process and cope with, you know, what this means for each of our personal realities, let alone trying to understand, you know, the national and global implications of this pandemic, that people are going to understand the idea of, you know, having to think about the health of other people when that isn't really how we've interacted as as a community on any given day. And then you see the increased police presence, you know, people trying to enforce people staying inside, which has had a greater impact on black and brown communities in a negative way. And so I believe that the lack of preparation, you know, from widespread testing, early disbursement of personal protective equipment and ventilators definitely would have helped those who didn't have an option to stay inside um, and would have reduced the burden from those who are not, who just aren't thinking about the health of the collective. And so to sum all that up, you know, the lack of initiative and, again, early preparation from the federal government, aka the people who are supposed to have plans for the plans for the plans, um, the response measures in place for things like this fails to do that. And now the pre-existing social inequities that have been hurting and will continue to hurt our country's most vulnerable is going to happen at an even greater level. And so obviously the, the general response when you put it like that is like, obviously, you know, anyone could have told me that, but I think the conversation then needs to become how can local communities and individuals work to make up for that and try to provide temporary relief. And so the beautiful thing that has come out from this pandemic is seeing people, you know, come together and organize and create mutual aid networks um, or, you know, just uplift the ones that have already existed to support the most vulnerable and that people are organizing around these social inequities and during this pandemic and using it as a clear example of why these social systems need to change. For example, the Prison Policy Initiative has some really great content on how the criminal justice system could slow the pandemic, which I'll be sure to include a link to. Um, But with that said, there are three key things that I want us all to take away from this if you're able to do so. One, support mutual aid networks or volunteer or financially support those hit hardest by the pandemic. Two, Educate yourself on the issues through the stories of people from vulnerable communities and the organizations advocating on their behalf to understand and experience outside of your own. Three, learn more about and support universal policies currently on the table that ensure support for those that need it most, like the Rent and Mortgage Cancellation Act, also known as H.R. 6515. So this bill specifically addresses how the health crisis coincides with the ongoing housing crisis, which I believe opens the door for, you know, the kinds of policies that are usually deemed as radical. The most important thing with these kinds of policies is that they show us how inconsequential certain things are. Like this has been a lot of the conversation happening on social media, like things like rent and fare for public transportation and all these other things that are so often like unnecessarily reinforced um were literally in place just to to burden poor people for no reason it's not that the way things were were so set in stone that we couldn't change them or that any movements to change them were so incredibly radical it's the idea that actually taking care of and prioritizing the people is literally not in the vocabulary of the american government and so just to remind everyone we are in the middle of an election so do with that information what you will um of course on the local level because that's something that we vote on too but of course again on the national level 
But to reiterate the three key things that I mentioned earlier, tapping into mutual aid networks if you're able to and educating yourself on the issues. Better to Speak has a community resource guide with links to mutual aid programs and articles that talk about how specific vulnerable populations are navigating this crisis. And finally, even if these policies don't get passed, I believe that it's really important to stay informed about them and take note of what they're specifically asking for and understanding how that would play out in your community, what the specific implications would be. And even if you know you think of yourself or how this would impact you and your community, even if it doesn't have a huge difference for you, think about the most vulnerable and marginalized people and think about how that policy would impact them. Because seeing these types of universal policies on the table is one way to start reimagining what systems could look like on a policy level. The biggest thing that I want to end on is that a lot of people are talking about um, how things will look after this and if we'll quote unquote go back to normal or if things will change for the better or for the worse. And I think that if we kind of just sit around and ride this out, assuming that it doesn't continue to get worse, things will definitely go back to how they were, which obviously wasn't really great to begin with. Reading the room, of course, these are conversations to be had secondary to prioritizing your health and wellness um, and that of your family and communities. But I think that it would definitely be a missed opportunity to allow things to just go back to normal and not use this time to educate ourselves and become activated with causes that are doing the work to build a more equitable future. I'm definitely a firm believer in local community organizations that aim to supplement government social programs because I feel like they're often the ones that are more attuned to the specific needs of community members that they serve. But a lot of times those organizations and leaders aren't able to get the funding they need or the manpower to really execute their plans. So going back to the community resource guide, I tried to focus on organizations that are Black-led or Black women-led, or in general working specifically to serve Black people, but of course there are a lot of organizations doing a lot of great work that need our support to keep doing that work. It's also a really great opportunity to just learn about what organizations are out there doing the work, and more importantly, how you know those running for office have measured up regarding their coronavirus response. Again, we are in the middle of an election, and so I think taking note of how people who you know want your vote, or who are claiming to want your vote, or who are aiming to serve your community are actually doing that, because this is you know the perfect time to prove. Okay, are you actually doing that work when you're not, when you don't necessarily have a position yet? That's it for this episode. Again, please continue to prioritize your health and the health of those around you by staying home if you can, washing your hands. Again, staying home if you can for those in the back. You can find Better to Speak on social media at better to speak underscore or at our website, bettertospeak.org, which is where you can also find the community resource guide. Make sure to tune in to future episodes where we'll dive into various sociopolitical topics with the goal of transforming silence into language and action. Once again, I'm your host, Casey Felton. Thank you for listening.